I bought a bad house. I bought a bad house that we ripped down to the studs. We rebuilt the whole thing and added another floor. Well, I almost lost my shirt because that's just a lot of work and there's too many variables in there for someone that's new like me. What I would have been better off doing is sort of buying a home with a tenant in it, painting the walls, making it a little bit nicer, repositioning it, so to speak, and raising that rent by 10 or 20%. And that would have been a phenomenal return on my money. And so that's the same thing I tell people with websites. You want to buy businesses or websites it's sort of function on their own. Now they are dynamic. I don't believe in passive income unless you're incredibly wealthy. I think that that's sort of a farce. So you do have to maintain them, but you want to buy websites that hypothetically can function pretty much on their own. And the one of the key metrics for me is, is continued growth or sustainability for the, at least the past one to two years. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fort. I'm excited to have James Camp with me today, who has built a phenomenal career uh, buying and flipping websites. So today's episode is a website flipping 101. I journey with him into how to source websites, how to underwrite them, how to capitalize them, how to make sure uh, you're covering all your risks, how to perform due diligence. We talk about all things website flipping and how to improve them and create value. So it was a lot of fun. I did not know a whole lot about this. And I left this episode feeling like I learned a ton about this industry. I'll spoil it a little bit, but James is um, bullish that there is a lot of opportunity in this space and it's not something that has been widely invested in yet. So thank you for continuing to join me on this journey. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. James, welcome to the show today. I am really excited about our conversation. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for having me. Can we just get started with a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to what you're currently doing today? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sort of one of the those classic unemployable serial entrepreneurs. And I like to say that I've got two exits and a thousand failures, but I think the reality is I've got significantly more than a thousand failures. And one of those exits is hardly an exit. But I was, you know, 16 years old. I wanted to start making money. And uh, that was my father was an entrepreneur. And I sort of saw that that was a, a path to success. And I started looking uh, into different ways of making money. And the internet seemed to be the most accessible. And I sort of, I'm 33. I just turned 33 last week. So I happened to be on that exact cusp of sort of, I think, the first generation to have access to the internet. So I remember the AOL CD-ROMs, um, but I, but I, that was a big thing for me. And I just started a blog and I started writing about things that I loved and I liked. And I was just became a spammer without meaning to. I, I was just sort of sending every inboxing everyone I could think of in these blogging communities with my content. Um, and a couple articles went viral and I made like $35 on AdSense. And that was sort of changed the, the game for me. I stopped cutting school to sell candy and I started working on internet businesses. Was sort of involved in some large internet marketing communities that don't exist much anymore today, but I became sort of a, a, a well-respected person in that space. And I started what's called an affiliate network or a CPA network. 
And basically, it's just an ad network where people are getting paid per lead. And uh, sold that when I was pretty young. And from there, felt, you know, I could play in a more big boy world. And I did digital strategy for about a decade and did marketing for tons of companies and big firms like McKinsey and Lionsgate and Tau Group and Butter Group and all the whole gamut and also worked with tons of different startups. And uh, when I was in my mid-20s, I really wanted to have a change of life. So I ran off to Southeast Asia and did try to do the digital nomad thing for a while. It worked out, but it got incredibly boring. <laughs> and uh, I started mentoring at some accelerators. And the biggest one I got plugged into was is called Google Launchpad, and it's Google's hyper accelerator for tech startups. And I started teaching startups and their accelerators about growth hacking and customer acquisition and monetization. And I had a friend, I was coming back to visit the States, and uh, I had a friend who had been a commodities trader. And he said, you know, I really believe that cannabis is the next great commodity and that people just don't see it that way. We need to get to fungible extracts and we need legalization and all these different things. And we went out and he had had a little blog about marijuana investing. And I took that blog and we renamed it and rebuilt it. And a couple of years later, it became sort of the the cornerstone, the, the pillar piece of a holdings company that had a digital strategy consulting firm in it. And uh, we often took equity in lieu of cash for believing that these companies would grow VC style and a couple of them hit, became very large. And in 2020, we were lucky enough for some of those pieces to become big enough that a group uh, bought us out. And I discovered Twitter and started talking about website flipping again and getting addicted to Twitter. And, uh, and that's how we're here today. So when you went off to Malaysia, how long did you spend kind of like seeking out where you were going to go? How did you pick that spot? And then what did you do while you were there? You just kind of lived and, and just worked from your computer just in another part of the world? Yeah, I'd had the, the year prior, I had sort of felt I was going through this quarter life crisis, if you will. I was at the time, I was much more involved with doing uh, a lot of marketing for uh, F&B companies, so food and beverage companies, very large nightclub companies. Uh, you know, I was out a lot, partying a lot, and I thought, I can't do this anymore. And uh, I went on a six-week backpacking journey <laughs> through Southeast Asia. I had one friend who lived in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, and he convinced me, and I ran around for six weeks, and I came back, and I said, maybe I got to live there. And uh, I'm not a religious guy. But I had a sort of moment, an epiphany, if you will, where something spoke to me and said, you got to do this. You got to get out there. This is going to change your life. So called all my clients and basically sunsetted them, except for one that was as very serendipitous, was very okay with me having a remote contract. And that was McKinsey. It was a, a big deal for me at the time and um, kept that contract. And I, you know, said I'm seen wired off money for an apartment in Kuala Lumpur, <laughs> moved out there. And then, yeah, I would... Just work. It was very eat, pray, love. Work on me. Figure out what makes me happy. Figure out what is the easiest path of success for me. Put myself like in that path. And uh, yeah, I got pretty healthy and fit. And I'd go to Bali on the weekends and Thailand on the weekends and and run around. And uh, I had a lot of friends out there who worked for a company called Mind Valley, which is a very, very big direct response info product marketing company. And so I got much more plugged into that space and got a good understanding of how that all worked. 
But yeah, it was just a lot of me and my laptop sitting on beaches, sitting in my apartment, um, having a good time and sort of eventually getting bored of it and realizing that was possible. But I wanted to sort of come back to what I felt was a higher competition playing ground. Yeah, super cool. I've never, never done anything like that, but uh, I'm always envious of the people that have had a chance to kind of get out of town for a couple of years and just chill and work. Yeah. Yeah. Reinvent yourself a bit. I felt, you know, at 33, I couldn't do that, for example. Right. I mean, obviously I'm a firm believer that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, but my life is just infinitely more complex today than it was back then. It was serendipitous timing. What it also taught me is that worst comes to worst. If everything that I ever work on fails, all I need is five, five grand and and a plane ticket to Southeast Asia. Uh, And I'll, I'll be all right all over again. (laughs) Can you just give a little detail on what do like what doing digital strategy for a company like McKinsey like what are you actually doing uh, for them what were you what were you uh, hired to do? Sure. So so to be clear, um, I know that firm very well. Most a large part of my family are partners in that firm, but for me, I was actually McKinsey as a client, right? So as a contractor um, for them, and so basically, I did digital strategies for them. So instead of them putting me under their clients. We sort of did a deep dive, built out, you could call it a white paper report, but they were looking at sort of the, the, the old guard of management consulting. Management consulting at that level has always been a handshake, right? You just sort of, they consult a Fortune 50, then when the Fortune 50 or 500, whatever, needs a new CEO, they end up hiring a consultant, becomes a CEO, and that sort of, you know, nepotism goes in a circle forever. And what they've realized is sort of that the reality is that management consulting is changing. Um, orgs are changing. The way that people operate are changing. And so I worked at, uh, on a project, well, the first project that was for their org health solution. And so basically it was about like, how do we start to acquire customers at an earlier point in their customer journey, so to speak, clients earlier in their journey, and they can graduate to doing a full engagement, right? So how do we find a client that wants to spend 100K Right. We can help them. And then later on, we can do a $20 million engagement with them. Cause that's, I think, I think for a lot of some people are, you know, incredibly aware of this, but I think a lot of people that I know are wildly unaware <laughs> that sort of consulting at scale is really, you know, eight figure contracts, yeah. you know, pretty consistently. Right. Yep. And then before we dive into to websites, if uh, it's maybe a loaded question, but given your recent experience in cannabis, actually made my first investment in the cannabis industry uh, two months ago. If you had to say, like, what's the state of cannabis? How early are we? How big of an opportunity is coming? Like, what did you learn from all that? And just maybe set the, the stage for folks that might not know where cannabis is. Like, how big of an opportunity is this? And um, what are we in for maybe over the next decade? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so from my perspective, and I remember having you know, playful arguments with my friends at big firms. Like I, I specifically remember two conversations with, with some friends in BlackRock where they all were saying, oh, cannabis will never be as big as beer. Well, to make this incredibly clear, cannabis is as big as beer, right? Like it already is. It just, it's illegal, right? So the numbers don't exist today in the way that we can see it, right? Yep. Like everyone smokes pot, right? Yep. And everyone has always smoked pot and people are continuing to smoke more pot. And the reality is that I'm sort of the firm believer in other ancillary businesses that come alongside of it. We used to say, I've got out of the, I mean, I'm still, I still have equity in some, some companies in this space, I'm an advisor to some, but when I was really deep in it, everyone always said, we're still in the first inning. 
I wouldn't say that we're still in the first inning anymore, but I wouldn't say that the game's almost over. <laughs> you know, we got a long way to go. And, and from, and from investments, you're still looking at sort of a lack of access to capital for most businesses. And there are some interesting rules that exist for tax deductions for cannabis companies. I think a lot of people aren't aware of, and I believe it's 10 EDE, but Otherwise, what it means is that a cannabis company is not allowed to write off uh, traditional expenses in the way that you and I are with our businesses today. So if you're running a profitable business without writing off any marketing expenses or, you know, or, or anything like that, like you're going to be a much more profitable business later on. <laughs> you know, this is just, it'll just change your business. The uh, it'll change your net profits pretty astronomically. Right. So I think there's major opportunity there. Clearly, we're not at legalization yet. We're going to see more consolidation. Um, I'm I'm very bullish on the industry and bearish on the, the price of the plant. I do believe this is a commodity. You know, when I put gas in my car, right? And if you're in Texas, you know the American shale industry probably pretty well, right? Like when I when I put gas in my car, right? When I use refined oil, I don't care whether it comes from Katy, Texas or Alaska. Or Venezuela or Kuwait. It doesn't matter to me. It all comes together. It gets homogenized, right? Or refined and homogenized. And then it goes into my car, right? So I think that happens is going to happen with the cannabis industry as well. So my point saying that is flour, which is what people smoke a lot, right? Is, is that will you have super high quality flour, low quality flour. But in terms of extracts, that extracts will become fungible. Right, they will become homogenized, in which they're all the same. And so, when I pull CBD or THC oil out of a plant, it doesn't matter whether that grew in in Colombia or Uruguay for a dollar, uh, you know, or eight cents a gram, sorry, or if it grew up in Canada in a in a in a medical facility for a dollar eighty a gram for for the, for the cost of goods. It's not going to matter, right? So, industry's got a long way to go. I think that commoditized pricing pressure will eventually bring down some of the price of the plants, but I think there's still massive opportunity there. I'll, I'll end it on, if you're interested in public cannabis companies, I never tell anyone to invest in anything. But what I will say is that the moment that this becomes federally legal, we're going to see another bull run in this industry for the big players. There's just not, there's not a question about that in my mind. Do you have any insight of when it might be federally legal or do you have any predictions of what might happen during the Biden administration? I, I would I would bet on the Biden administration. I would have bet on it if Trump had got a second term, if we're not getting political, that, that Trump would have made it happen too. I think it's just, it's hard to, like we live in, you know, we're not a real democracy, we're a republic, but this is all based on capitalism. And I really do think it becomes tough to turn down the revenue derived from this. Um, I, I live in New York City, right? And so New York, we just legalized it. Now, it's going to take another year or two until we roll out sort of the recreational scale of it. But, you know, the reality is that we're surrounded by, like, New Jersey and Massachusetts, both which are legal. And so, you know, people just drive up to Massachusetts to go buy their marijuana legally. There's no way that New York City is going to let that happen forever, <laughs> right? They're, they're, they're not going to sort of – they're not dumb, right? Everyone knows that people are buying it and smoking it anyway. We may as well uh, capture the, the revenue from it ourselves, so I think that's only a matter of time until the, the federal legislation changes. Probably in the next, I would, I would give the next couple of years until the law changes, but I think it'll take another few years after that to have it actually rolled out, right? There's so much regulation around it in the space. Yep. So you 
exit these businesses in uh, 2020 or some of them. And you said you got on Twitter and started getting back to your roots of website flipping. So let's just start diving into that. What what are you are you currently doing? Are you consulting? Are you flipping on your own? What do you, what's like the the state of things right now? Yeah, so I, you know, I I've been flipping websites on and off for uh, 13 years or something, 14 years, and I just love I love M&A, I love underwriting deals, I love running cases. It's sort of my weird like passion. And I've always been looking at this stuff and, and will continue to look at it. But the reality is that I had been talking to a friend and, you know, we were looking through a flip a listing and I was like, oh man, this website would be great. You know, do this, this, and this, and this, and you can make it this. And he was like, that's crazy. You should talk about that. So I started tweeting about it. I put one tweet out and I got, I think I had like a thousand followers or 2000 followers and I got 1400 new followers in a day. And I was sort of flabbergasted by that at the time. And sort of decided to, to continue to do that kind of stuff. But for me personally, you know, my ex who I was with when I started doing this stuff was always saying, you're, you don't have a job. You're unemployed. Go get a job, which I would say, no, I'm not. I'm consulting. I mean, she, ostensibly, she was right. You know, <laughs> uh, a, a couple phone calls here and there, a client here and there, a couple hours of work a day is not really a real job. I decided I had been part of some roll-ups before and I had sort of done without getting into a longer story about me, I'd been involved in some sort of broker exempt M&A advisory in the past. And I thought, you know, let's stop thinking about this as flipping. Let's just think bigger and get bigger here. And so my personal projects that I'm currently working on is I've recently started a company called Common Commerce. And it is a e-commerce holdings company that seeks to grow through acquisitions, acquiring digitally native consumer packaged goods brands. Now, what that really just means is we buy e-com stores, right? Um, that are direct to consumer based. And the thesis here, and this is what I try and teach people with website flipping stuff as well, is we want to buy really good businesses. The cash on cash returns for this asset class are sort of astronomical and unbelievable. Uh, a pretty standard view, you know, most websites in the past. You know, they're starting to go a little higher now, but for a long time, you could buy websites always at like a 36x month, uh, on monthly net cash flow, right? So that basically means you're getting you know 33% back cash on cash each year, as long as you're not using debt. If you're using debt, a ton more, right? Um, but that's just not normal, right? And I think that we're seeing that start to change, and we're seeing a lot of larger players come into space and make that more difficult because there's more money coming in to buy so people can sell for more. But our thesis is to buy good businesses that we can grow, but most importantly, to sort of crush off X with a shared services model. Because there's a lot of inefficiencies that happen when you're running a singular brand that can sort of disappear when you bring everything in-house. So I just believe there's enough opportunity in the space that we can buy good brands that don't need me to baby them and take care of them in a, in a really time-intensive manner, but that are good and we can grow them a bit, but that they become even more efficient by using a shared services model on the back end. Got it. So I'm going to treat the the series of questions almost like I'm wanting to invest with you, but I know nothing. So we'll just ask some really basic questions. But because this is uh, your episode, we're going to talk about the things that you're interested in. 
you say, I want to buy really good businesses. Can you kind of frame uh, at a high level, what does a really good business look like to you? Maybe on paper, how large is it? Um, and we'll just kind of start there. Yeah, for me, I think that what I look for in a good business specifically, what well, what I tell people for them is different than for me. And, and that's just because when I give people advice about buying businesses or websites, that I, that I generally want them to sort of remove as much risk as possible. I'm incredibly uncomfortable telling people to, to buy businesses and websites, so I try and make them be as cautious as possible. I have a little bit more of a, a risk appetite. But for, for us, what I'm looking for are businesses, 500,000 to a million in EBITDA. Uh, we're, we're really, for us, that's probably more of an SDE scenario, so seller's discretionary earnings. You know, I like to use the term EBITDA because most of my investors... <laughs> And people I speak to think think in terms of EBITDA, and um, that's because at scale, most of of those letters in EBITDA can be like changeable, moved around without too much work. For example, let's say I bought, let's say I were a much bigger business and I had, you know, I was a big PE firm, and we also had a debt fund, and I wanted to buy a business, and they were paying, you know, twenty percent interest on the debt that they were carrying. I would happily refinance that debt with our own debt at a much lower rate. Uh, and that would change the EBITDA, obviously, pretty clearly in that scenario. So anyway, so for us, it's trying to buy businesses that are 500,000 plus in EBITDA. Um, I would like to go much bigger, but it just happens to be the check size that I currently get my hands on easily. The reason that it's I look for that size is because I want to be able to... Re- I don't want to buy myself a job. I want to buy myself businesses, right? And so clearly, there needs to be enough profit... Um, to employ people to run this business on its own. So the first one, we just closed on our first acquisition about three weeks ago. It's tracking for about $3 million this year. I think we'll get it to five. And if we do five, we'll do a million in EBITDA. But that business comes fully functioning with employees, right? So I don't have to go and work on it all day, every day. Now, not to say that I don't help out, but that's the thesis, right? These are good, big enough businesses that they function on their own, that they don't need me to function. But often when I talk to people that I want to look for, you want to look for sort of stable or increasing, the same for myself, stable or increasing traffic and revenue for the past 12 to 24 months. I'm not, you know, I'm not a distressed PE shop. I'm not trying to buy things deeply undervalued and rip them apart and make them infinitely better. That's not my investment thesis. My thesis is the cash on cash returns are so phenomenal in this asset class. I'd rather slowly overpay for a good business and bring in 25% cash on cash year one, you know, then then try and underpay for a business that's more likely to fall apart. Um, the way that I look at it is I recently tried to take, you know, a dive into real estate and I decided to flip a house. I almost lost my shirt with this house. I got incredibly lucky because the market has been so on fire that the value, forget the improvements I did, just the value of my property has probably gone up 15 or 20% in the past six months on its own, right? And so that's the only way I'm not losing money on this property. But I bought a bad house. I bought a bad house. We ripped down to the studs. We rebuilt the whole thing and added another floor. Well, I almost lost my shirt because that's just a lot of work and there's too many variables in there for someone that's new like me. What I would have been better off doing is sort of buying a home with a tenant in it, you know, painting the walls, making it a little bit nicer, repositioning it, so to speak, and raising that rent by 10 or 20%. And that would have been a phenomenal return on my money. And so that's the same thing I tell people with websites. You want to buy businesses or websites 
that sort of function on their own. Now, they are dynamic. I don't believe in passive income unless you're incredibly wealthy. I think that that's sort of a farce. So you do have to maintain them, but you want to buy websites that hypothetically can function pretty much on their own. And the, one of the key metrics for me is, is continued growth or sustainability for the, at least the past one to two years. And you said you're focused on e-com stores, so no kind of SaaS businesses or things like job boards. You're, you're purely focused in the, the e-com world? So interestingly, my background is much more in terms of stuff I've flipped is much more content websites, right? So like blogs, news websites, et cetera. So I know that world really well, but I have been involved with some e-commerce stores that can tell you that without a super long explanation of it, that the margins and unit economics on e-commerce really work better at scale with this shared services model than the than the content-based websites. If you're a one-man team building and maintaining a blog or Amazon Associates, you know, affiliate website, hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand dollars, that's very manageable for you, right? Um, the problem is that when you want to do, if you're doing a hundred k a year in e-com, you're probably really working, like really working, because someone is running ads. That's probably you. You cannot afford to pay someone to run those ads for you. You know, we spend you know, five figures a month on a media buying team that doesn't include creative or copy um, just for the media buying, for the ads for this one brand we just acquired, right? So at scale, I, I thought there was more opportunity with e-commerce brands. Um, I also just look at sort of comps in the space and there was just, it was deal flow I had access to that had, had very high valued comps. And then to answer your question about SaaS, I'd love to play in the SaaS space, but I've really only consulted a couple SaaS companies. And I'm really a firm believer in doing things outside your comfort zone, but really doing what you think you're great at. And so we may acquire a SaaS business at some point. I've looked at it a bit. The problem is that the multiples that they are valued at make it sort of less cash on cash initially. <laughs> Um, so it becomes less compelling to us unless it, unless it's like an accretive product that fits into our ecosystems and makes our businesses better. Yep. I'm going to ask the dumbest of dumb questions. So here we go. Yeah, please. When, when you say e-commerce business, are you buying a website that's facilitating e-commerce or are you buying like a t-shirt company that only sells online and therefore it's an e-commerce brand? Can you kind of uh, give a little more detail on what an e-commerce uh, online business looks like to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually love that question, uh, oddly, because people always say to me, how do I get started in e-commerce? And my first answer to them is remove the E and think about how dumb that question sounds, right? Because if you just said to me, how do I get started in commerce? I'd say that's the vaguest question I've ever heard in my entire life. What do you, <laughs> what do you mean? What, what, what do you want to do, right? Like there's so much deeper you have to go. So that question I don't think is dumb. I think it's actually a, a great question. So for me, I mean consumer packaged goods brands that are built to be sold digitally, right? So I mean, actually, in this scenario, a t-shirt company, right, that you said. So I'll tell you, part of it for me, and I kind of want to buy unsexy. Everyone talks about unsexy businesses. Obviously, e-commerce is a little sexy. But I try and common commerce is the name of our company for one part of the reason is that we want to just acquire kind of common, boring businesses that are have great margins and will always have a place and are not going to just get destroyed by incumbents. 
because the incumbents are living in brick and mortar, right? And, and there's space for us digitally. So I had been involved in cannabis. I'd been involved in digital strategy for big consulting firms. I'd done a bunch of like weird esoteric stuff. But the reality is I really wanted to sell widgets. Like I was like itching just to sell widgets. Because um, when the cannabis side, I wasn't buying pot and selling pot. That's selling widgets, right? I was doing much more weird stuff. So yeah, so for me, this was a great opportunity. How do we buy or build widgets in bulk yep. <laughs> and then and then sell them at retail? It's just the oldest business model on the planet. Yep. And your competitive advantage is you know how to work the online world so you can increase sales, increase efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. And and don't get me wrong, I would love, I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to going brick and mortar with some of these brands, right? If if possible. I just know that that requires us bringing new people onto the team, right? Because um, that's just a different beast. There was um, a brand that I used to own a piece of that I sold last year that is a consumer packaged goods brand. It was a uh, that was made with Manuka honey and CBD, and it was a skincare brand. Mm-hmm. We actually were doing like ten or eleven million a year in brick and mortar, uh, mostly through like Alta and new markets in Nordstrom, and, and like Alta is the largest beauty retailer on the planet. And I've been trying to get them to be more involved in their e-commerce side, their digital side for a long time. And no one on the board had any interest in it. The board was ultimate respect to them. I love these guys, but a bunch of private equity guys, you know, guys who had taken Build-A-Bear Public, right, a long time ago. And so they just were malls, 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 retail, retail, retail. And they spent a ton on their website. All the assets were great, but no one really pushed it online. Well, we got a phone call in March from Ulta Beauty, which we were in 2,000 of their stores. And they basically said, in, in short, you could hold on to that net 60 contract because we're not paying you, right? In a much more polite way. <laughs> but they said, our stores are closed. We're, you know, you're not L'Oreal, right? You're not some major, major retail uh, brand for us. So we will pay you eventually, but we're not going to pay you till our stores open again. Um, and so what I learned there was that clearly our, that sales channel was owned by the retailers. In the same way that I believe the big, my, the big incumbent in my world is Thrasia, which buys FBA-based businesses, so fulfillment by Amazon, fulfilled by Amazon, so Amazon businesses. And the same reason I'm not super interested in that world is because Amazon owns that channel as well. I'm much more interested in us owning our data, and then we can use Amazon as a sales channel. We can use brick and mortar as a sales channel. But I want to, when I talk about good businesses, this business, I don't need someone else selling for us. We can, on our own, spit off a million in EBITDA this year, right? Be very profitable. And so that's the type of business I look for. Okay. So how do you find a business like this? Do you go, are there listing websites? You hire a broker? You just kind of reach out to uh, online brands uh, that you like? Like, how, how would you go about finding a company like this to buy? Well, what I always tell people with all the website flipping stuff I talk about, I really push people, at least in the beginning, is to go to the brokers and marketplaces online. And that's going to be Flippa, Empire Flippers, SE International, Quiet Light. There's a bunch more. Those are just the, the, the ones I always rattle off the top of my head. When we're talking about other people, what I, what I tell them is that you want to be either very comfortable with due diligence or going to a broker. And now I want to be clear, there is no fiduciary obligation from a broker. They're only incentivized to work for the seller, right? Clearly. And that's for anyone listening, that's like the difference when you are buying securities from a broker, they can just sell you anything they want. (laughs) 
So in that regard, but the broker has already taken sort of the onus of doing due diligence for you a bit, putting it together, putting together a deal room for you, um, and their reputation is on the line. So I think that's important, but I will tell you that the best deals, and I'm sure this is true with real estate as well, come from networking and mar- and like off-market stuff, right? Um, and so this first brand we just acquired was actually a brand that I consulted for last year. And I saw and got to see the inside of their business. I saw it was awesome. I saw the inefficiencies, helped them fix some of them as part of the engagements. They really increased their revenue. And then when when I decided really to go full force with this, um, they were just a clear win because I had the relationships with the owners. We could do an accretive and interesting deal structure that was more complex than just here's a pile of cash and walk away forever because we had that that that, that dynamic already. So I would say that for everyone, I would go recommend that they use brokers and and marketplaces, and that when you feel more comfortable, you know you're digging through old product hunt listings. What was on product hunt and blew up and never really blew up, right? Who are you consulting for? What don't talk to your friends with the agencies? You know, it's sort of I, I think with real estate, people say talk to like tax attorneys and lawyers, right? And you find people that are looking for 1031 exchanges and stuff like that. Obviously, that's more, it's probably a smaller, different world than the one you play in. But uh, great opportunities off market through networking, but you really have to know how to navigate that space. Yep. Okay. So you, you find a business. What does a typical contract look like? Like, what are the major, is it kind of like a real estate contract? What are the major terms that matter? And how quickly do these, you know, call it 500K to a million EBITDA businesses uh, usually take to close? So, uh, to be completely candid, like the, the, the size of businesses I've been involved in before are either smaller than that or bigger than that. This is just the size that I've started to be able to play in on my own. And so the sale of my last business, which was 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 a bigger business than that, right? But not a rev, not necessarily just a revenue, but just for the sale of the business, it was an eight figure sale. That took like seven or eight months to close, and and like well into well into six figures of legal fees, <laughs> which was just sort of mind blowing. I think that's something that people, when I'm talking to people about acquiring their business, I think people don't understand that I'm going to probably spend thirty or forty grand just on legal fees to to get this all done. But this first one for me went quickly in terms of what I think things normally close in. It took us probably two months, right? I think if you were going through a broker that you could probably get it done in a month or two. It really depends on so many things. But I've been involved in transactions that went on seven months and then fell apart at the end, right? So that was just me, you know, teams I've been involved with on nine-figure transactions, but you know, watch people dump 250k into legal, another 150k into audits, and then have everything fall apart at the end. Now there's like break fees and the way that it gets covered and stuff, right? But um, so for for that size, for the size I'm looking at now, I'd like things to close in under three months. Hopefully, in a month or two. One thing I like about our business, Common Commerce, is that you know we do have this it's structured in a way that I can really make all the decisions and we can move really quickly um, in a way that. Uh, a lot of other businesses are going to have to go. I mean, we have a board, but are just going to have to go underwrite it on several levels, right? Whereas it's like we're underwriting it right now. Um, other people are going through much more complex underwriting processes. But if you're buying a business, if you're buying a website, and you're in, in the couple hundred thousand dollar range for the total purchase, or ten or twenty thousand, you know, you close in a day. You know, if you're buying something on Flippa, you're just paying right there, and it's going into escrow and hidden to you, so under a week. Yep. 
sticking to maybe something a little bit bigger that would be 60 days, is there like a hard earnest money or sometime that you have a non-refundable deposit or is that not how it works when you're buying a website? So it really can. It, it totally can work that way. It's not a deal that I've worked on. I mean, the, the way that I've done things, and, and maybe I'm going to find out in the long run that this is not the way that, that it gets done um, at scale. But from my experience, it just the, step, the steps are simple. It's an NDA, right? Let's all get comfortable. That's one of those agreements that everyone signs that really means almost absolutely nothing. Then an LOI, non-binding. Um, that's a letter of intent. Um, this is really just to outlay the terms of what we think we're looking at here. And do we all agree that this is what we're going to try and accomplish? And so we do non-bonding LOIs there. And then following that, and that, that sort of stuff I try and do outside of attorneys because I would just spend 10 grand on those two things and I can get those out on my own. And then the, the next steps are definitive agreements right, in merger docs. And that's where securities attorneys come into play. And, and that's where things are longer my attorneys, and I'm sure everyone's attorneys will tell you that they're making all these documents from scratch. I would bet my bottom dollar that 99% of it's boilerplated anyway. But that's where things get longer because you someone puts together, you know, 30 pages get done and then it gets sent to the buyers, you know, to, sorry, to the seller's team. And if, if they're smart, which at that size they are, they have an attorney looking over it. They've got changes. That's where the back and forth becomes um, done. And then obviously there's board approval, you know, you have resolutions to articles of organization. We just, you know, we're a C corp that acquires LLCs, right? So for us, it's, you know, that C, that LLC then has to sort of change the articles of organization to say, you know, there's, there's tons of little details there. Pretty much the standard format for us is, is NDA, LOI, definitive agreement, right? And, and closing. And, um, that can be more complex and inevitably for me, it is going to get more complex. But for now, that sort of we can move at that rate uh, with our current deal size. So once you're under contract, let's just walk through kind of the if, if maybe if we focus on the business that you just bought, or we can talk about any of them. But uh, let's talk about due diligence in real estate. We do, you know, we check the property, the environmental, we go through the financials, the rent, the the, the rent roll. What are you looking at? Customer lists, supply or suppliers? Like, what are all the things that you're checking the box on that gets you comfortable to move forward? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think for the smaller stuff that I that I talk about most of the time, and that, that people are, I, I try and teach about, you're really looking at traffic and revenue. I mean, you know, the reality is that we, there's a million other metrics that I look at for these bigger deals, but in general, you're buying a website for fifty grand, a hundred grand, five grand. There's two things you need to verify, and that's traffic and revenue. And the way that that's done is is just very luckily these days is it's, it's all digital. You can be added into Google Analytics, and you can be added into whatever backend. You know, if it's Shopify, for example, you can add me as view only access to your Shopify, right? So I can't edit anything around, but I can just dig in and see verifiably that this revenue happened. For me, what I start looking about at to your point is customer lists. Um, geos, time on site. This part of the due diligence process is uh, what are the improvements that I can make? I'm ha- I, I don't mind if there's something bad with the, with the business. I mean, as long as I think I can make it better, right? Uh, time on site. Are there opportunities for SEO? Are they running their media buying poorly? Um, what do their ad campaigns look like? Who's their customer? I'm a firm believer, without saying the exact business I just bought, it's in like the silver tech space. So I, I really like to look at businesses that follow this all ships rise in high tide scenario. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want that I want to make them better. I want to increase efficiencies. 
But, you know, for us, we just bought a business that is clearly geared towards baby boomers and retirees. And we, over the next five years, are going to watch the largest generation of all time retire, right? We're going to watch uh, something like 70 million people in the United States be over the age of 65. And so just inherently, our TAM, so to speak, is just going to increase without us trying to, right? So it, it, that, that should make things more easy, easy for us. When you start playing in the consumer package goods space at real scale, you're doing real inventory audits. Um, and this is something I was a part of in the past that became really complex. And that means that you auditors are, you and auditors are actually going to a warehouse and counting product <laughs> to make sure that that inventory is there and that the sales are going through, as they say. But the sort of high-level stuff are email lists, customer lists, traffic, and revenue. And very luckily, all of those can be ver- verified digitally for yeah. my business. And you've mentioned several times just like a $50,000 to $100,000 website, which I wasn't really thinking about, but now it sounds kind of interesting. Are these businesses that whoever's buying them is probably just kind of monitoring them and, and doing it kind of part-time? They might have a full-time job, but can kind of spend an hour or two a day kind of making sure that things are running. Like what's the... What's what does a fifty thousand dollar website look like? Hundred percent, and this is why I when we talked about why I do e-commerce for larger sites, right? And and the, and the smaller ones are content based because you can have a blog that sits there and just makes money. Now, I wouldn't recommend that, right? I recommend you work on it a bit, but I, I always try and comp this out to real estate, and because I, my, my sort of my shtick, my angle with everyone is that like this is digital real estate. This is sort of the future of real estate in many regards, and so. Let's let's assume to make the numbers easy that you're buying a website that that is you know valued at three x its yearly net, right? So 100k is a website that's making thirty thousand dollars of net profit, right? That's that's a great cash on cash return, that's right? Assuming no labor. Assuming well, let's let's well this is why let's comp it out to apartments as an example, right? Like a single family rental, we can assume and hope, and it's totally possible that we have a great tenant that just pays their rent on time and nothing breaks. Absolutely. Yep. Right. So it is totally possible to buy a website and not touch it and have it just keep making money. I think that we all know that when we get our hands dirty, that that is not the reality. Right. So when I was, and I'm, and I'm not really involved in real estate, but when I've looked at underwriting single family stuff, like I've set aside money for capex, right? So these, these costs of things breaking, right. I've set aside money for improvements. Right. And so that exists in the website world as well. So what I'd say is that, Listen, you might spend 100 hours a week working on a website that only makes 100 bucks a month, or you might spend one hour a month working at a website that makes $10,000 a month, right? This is, this is again, going to be the same thing in real estate. So the, this is why I'd say to buy good websites, and a lot of what I try and teach is about due diligence and understanding what's going to be most hands-off and fits for you correctly. So a $100,000 website probably is making $30,000 a year, and $30,000 a year... I. I try and push people to look for websites that they can maintain that with, you know, a couple, you know, maybe a few chunks of five to 10 hours of work, right? Like maybe you're painting the walls once, so to speak, right? A couple of basic improvements. But in general, there's just slight maintenance, an hour or two a week, a couple hours a week, nothing insane, right? Um, and I've got some case studies where, uh, not that I'm plugging any course or anything, but I, I've, I've listened to interviews and case studies with people where we break down the hourly return for their time invested. And, you know, you make them 200 bucks an hour, which I think for most people as a side gig is a great, you know, a, a great opportunity. 
So yeah, so that's the idea is to buy things that you maybe write one or two pieces of content a week for and maintain it, but don't need a gut rehab, so to speak. But if you were buying something that was like a blog that's, you know, somebody else had been writing the content, is it, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent, but you just said something that struck a nerve. Is it, is it risky to buy something where then the new buyer has to like write that type of content and sound the same and feel the same and look the same? Or is it the type of content that you're just kind of copy pasting stuff? So the, whoever's writing it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter who it is that's writing it. Yeah. So it's, it's a mix. What I'd say is that if I had a blog or you had a personal blog that it probably was way less valuable to someone because it's clearly attached to our, our personal brands and our voice and entity. Right. But when, when I talk about a blog, I mean, I just say blog, I really mean content site. And when I, it's like, if you Googled, what is the best chair, what's the best backyard barbecue, right. Or like where to find, I, I sold a website last year called hard, you know, that was for hard money lending in Houston, Texas. Right. Like, doesn't need to be written for someone's voice. This is basically a bridge between an advertiser and a publisher pub, uh, or, or an advertiser and a buyer of an end product, right? You are the connector there. No one's really cares so much about your singular voice. They read an article, they say, here's where I can get a, mo- a loan and they click a link and go get a loan, right? So yes, to answer your question, in the same way that, you know, my Twitter is worth six figures to me and to a complete stranger is worth nothing, Data is useless without authority and context. But the idea here when you're buying content sites is that the, the, the authority is coming from the website as opposed to from the author, if, if, if that makes sense. I don't know if it's a weird comparison. So like, like a news website, right? It has hundreds of authors, right? You don't know necessarily whose content you're reading on that. You, you believe in NewYorkTimes.com. You believe in, in whatever, right? As opposed to the specific person that that's coming from. Do you have a dream like $100,000 website? Like what the dream $100,000 website is? Maybe it's not even content. It's maybe selling like one widget that, you know, little niche can like, what does the dream $100,000 website look like? My dream $100,000 website is a website where someone feels like they've got, they, it has been a passion for them. So the content's really good, but it's not connected to them specifically. So Let's say that let's use barbecuing as an example. Sorry, I'm just looking at my backyard at my barbecue. <laughs> but I love barbecuing. So I want to write, I want to make a website about barbecues and barbecuing. Great. It's all great, passionate content, but it's not directly predicated on James Camp writing it. Right. And I've decided, oh, it's worth 100K because I put AdSense ads on my website and it makes 3,000 bucks a month. So the market decides it's worth 100K. Right. And I look at it as a buyer and I say, okay, AdSense is pretty easy, low hanging fruit, right? I know how to make, I know I've got access to higher paying ad networks and ad ops agencies that literally by switching a line of code will make at least 10 or 20% more in it, possibly double the money. Right. And so that's like, I try and teach like best practices, low hanging fruit stuff. So that's, that's beautiful to me. Oh, they, you know, the a website that I can snap my fingers if someone has built something good and within a day of work, we can double the revenue, right? Um, and, and make massive amounts more money. So uh, something where someone has been passionate about it, they do not have it attached specifically to their name. It's great content. They've kept it updated. But uh, the truth is I can come in and, and by in implementing a list of best practices that I have, and I have these worksheets that I, that I keep of best practices of low-hanging fruit and easy wins, 
that all of a sudden we can increase revenue by you know 20 30 percent plus because the reality is at that point oh another thing there is that this website has been great stable or growing traffic for the past 12 to 24 months not predicated on them putting out new articles so it's just that they've got content that google loves that stays there all the time and it survived all the google algorithm updates right so it's it survived all the new politicians changing tax code <laughs> So, so to speak, right? For in the real estate scenario, and because it survived that, you know, I will never say that past performance is indicative of future earnings or results, right? But it's a pretty good indicator, right? We all believe the S and P is going to continue to go up because it has for the past hundred years. Same, same here with with these websites. So, it doesn't take much maintenance. It's under monetized, and I can fix it in a day. And and there's tons of opportunities like that. Those are going to go away, right? Eventually. But right now, there's tons of opportunities like that. Is there any risk? Like you mentioned that oh, you might buy this thing and Google AdSense pays it 3K a month, therefore it's worth 100K. Is there any risk in any of this that Google, just like uh, you know, Facebook's done over time, just eventually says, okay, uh, as of today, we're just going to start paying everybody 10% less now. Uh, we're going to keep more of the lion's share. These kind of contracts you sign with Google, like what is the risk that that revenue changes purely by way of Google just changing their policy. Absolutely. I mean, it happened actually with Amazon last year. So a lot of websites are based on Amazon Associates, which is Amazon's affiliate program. And they cut they cut their commissions in half. I mean, in a day. It just changed everyone's business. And so, you know, you know, there's these really corny sayings like scared money don't make no money. <laughs> I generally believe that, right? There's always inherent risk, right? Like, I'm not going to tell you this is a completely risk-free uh, scenario, but we can mitigate that risk. Part of it is, sadly, you know, I'll say there's other ad networks. There are. Most of them really use Google as their backends. The U.S. government would also like to be having conversations with Google about antitrust laws <laughs> because of this specifically. Um, so to, to answer your question, yeah, Google could change everything. But very luckily, in terms of that... So with Amazon, what's happening is again, Amazon owns that channel. They're sending you, you know, they're saying all the sales are going through us and we take a commission and they're changing their commission. Google's ads is a marketplace essentially between you who have inventory and buyers of that inventory that, that are buying ad space for their brands. And Google just takes a vague on that. They just take their commission. And from my perspective, obviously Google could increase their commission but because a market is hypothetically, there is price discovery and efficiency that happens, there shouldn't be actually any change that Google makes necessarily on, on that for the pricing. Does that make sense? It's just, is the demand there? It is? Great. In fact, if anything, what we saw during COVID was an, an insane increase in demand. <laughs> so if you had ads on your website, you were earning more from your ads. And if you were someone like me who's buying ads for our brands, you're paying more for those ads, right? There's more profitability also because more people are buying because everyone's shopping online. But, you know, there's price discovery and efficiencies that happen with marketplaces. And Google's model is just to take basically a broker fee on that. So they're fine no matter what. So there is inherent risk, but uh, you sort of just, there's always inherent risk. Things always change. Nothing is permanent. That's why I say passive income is a farce. Things are always dynamic and moving and changing. And one thing I tell people all the time that these websites, I keep using this term, but are dynamic. They're not static. They don't just sit there and make money. Of course, sometimes they do, but that is not a forever, ever thing. 
So you do need to be putting in a little bit of work in terms of maintaining this with new content every once in a while or a new backlink, updating old content. It's just maybe maybe it works perfectly without touching it for two or three years. Tons of examples like that. But I wouldn't assume that's going to happen forever. And on a $100,000 website, you're not really doing a lot of due diligence on like the code or anything. It's not like it's some proprietary code that built it. It's probably on some standardized format. There's Is there anything you do around just kind of looking into the actual tech that's running it? Or at 100K, they're all pretty generic? Honestly, even up to a couple million, they're all pretty generic in terms. And I'm, I'm sure that's probably not true for SaaSes. And so I don't want to you know, say it's obviously the opposite, I think, for, for, for most SaaSes. In terms of content sites and e-commerce stores, you know, I'm buying sites built, sites built on Shopify, right? I, I, the number of websites that, are, that I know of, you know, consumer packaged goods brands that sell online that are not built on a sort of CMS, so like a content management system, right? Like like that is already existent is, I can name on less than two hands, right? And they are multi-hundred million dollar, multi-billion dollar companies. So for us, in terms of looking at the tech side, yeah, like if you're, if you're on WordPress or Shopify, I want to look at what apps you're using, right? See if there's opportunities to, to reduce bloat and increase site speed by removing some of those or maybe... You know, maybe we already pay for an unlimited license of one app, which is a SaaS essentially, right, on, on the back ends that, that, that the website uses. And we can just combine it and crush OpEx there. But in general, no. I mean, it, they're all sort of built on WordPress and Shopify. I mean, it's sort of insane. Something like 60% of all websites on the internet today are built on WordPress. And uh, and if you're on WordPress, you're using WooCommerce, or, you know, for e-commerce, or you're just using a WordPress template. So there's not... Luckily, there's not an insane amount of uh, of due diligence in that regard for us. Yep. All right. One more on the topic of just small 50 to 100K websites. Um, so when you close, I've always just imagined when you own a website, if you own the domain, you own the website. Is that accurate? Or is there other things that transfer that uh, you actually own? Or does somebody just send you the domain and now it's yours and you set up your bank account to start receiving the revenue yourself? Sure. So there's two ways is that sort of the content that exists on the website sits on a server that is connected to the domain, essentially. Right. So there's two things that get transferred, and that's all the contents and that will go to your web host. And then there's the domain. For me, I'm sort of lucky enough to sort of the deals I'm working on these days. I'm not super worried about escrow. <laughs> We're just they're big enough deals. We've got enough legal agreements that I know what's going to go through here. On the smaller side, you know, you're buying something from a random stranger. On Flippa, for example, you're probably going to use an escrow service like escrow.com or there's a ton that exists in this space today. And so they're transferring the domain name ownership to you and then all of the content that is actually what you see in front of you. Think of the domain as the plot of land and the website as the property on top of it. Um, and this is actually, I said this to someone just yesterday because people ask me about, you know, uh, buying domains for website flipping or building websites. And you can buy a great domain. It's like buying a great plot of land. And if that domain is already has tons of backlinks to it and tons of authority because there's a different website on it already, well, then great. You've already bought it zoned with tax credits, right? It's just going to make it that much easier for when you build on top of it. But buying a cash flowing website is like buying a cash flowing property. That's really the closest comp I can think of. Um, 
conservative businesses today. Okay, I want to flip back to call it a a million dollar EBITDA business that this one is actually coming with people. And then I'm going to go back to maybe a 60 to 90 day timeline. And first thing that comes to my mind, and I know in your situation, you actually had experience with the company that you bought. But when these are being listed in part of the kind of offering package, is it kind of giving the buyer an update on which employees plan to stay? Is the owner going to stay? Like when I think of closing something in 60 days, that's a pretty quick way to get comfortable with people, have them all incentivized properly so that they'll keep running the business post-sale. So can we just speak to maybe the first question is, how do you underwrite the people in a short manner of time? And and how do you all come to agreements on everything that's going to happen post-close as it relates to their future? Sure. So um, I will use... so. The answer is it really changes on the deal size. I mean, you know, we're not using Citrix deal rooms, right? You know what I mean? For for these for deals of this size, right? I, it's not you're not it's not tracking every employment agreement that I download, right? Um, which I, I think a lot of people will be familiar with is that like when you really are doing real due diligence, there's these these these, these data rooms essentially, these deal rooms, right? Where you're just getting access to every legal document that has exist every contract and everything's being gone through. At this size, it's more like once everyone signed NDAs, um, you know, you might get access to invited to a Dropbox or a Google Drive with all the docs in it. Um, in terms of employees, so this business that I just acquired at this size has two full-time employees, two FTEs, and then eight contractors, give or take, essentially, that work on it. So one thing I taught when I think you buy a business, I think if you buy a bigger business than what I buy, you can sort of not even really understand the minutia of the business. And I see that all the time, right? People that run $500 million companies often don't actually understand how the company runs itself. They're glorified salesmen, right? And understand leadership. If you're buying a 50 or $100,000 or $5,000 website, that's business for sale too, right? You really should be having an idea of how everything runs. For me, the deal size that I look at, which is you know 500 to a couple million EBITDA, I just need to have a good knowledge of how everything works so that I can know who to hire and if they're good at what they do. So I, I'm one of those people, and I think a lot of people in my position say this, but I'm really a jack of all trades, master of none, right? I'm good at delegating. I'm really good at understanding from 30,000 feet up how the pieces get put together, but I've actually built these puzzles before myself. So I, I can sort of dive in and see how things work. So for this deal, I just sat in Slack for a long time with them, right? I mean, I was in their Slack channels way before we closed. So we're just becoming involved in their daily, in the day-to-day of seeing how the team worked, took a look at the SOPs that, that exist. Um, and then very luckily in this very specific deal, um, the old owner stayed on board, right? So they're a full-time employee of the business today. Um, so that really allows for me not to worry immensely about the management of the people and that transition. Because for me, I'm looking at acquiring businesses as opposed like with a parent company, right? As opposed to like, I think a lot of people look at buying businesses and running those businesses, if that makes sense. Right. So for me, I'm not. I, I my job is to raise capital, underwrite deals. And crush up X, right? That's sort of you know through our management MSA with our, our our parent company, right? But really, really, my job is raising is is making sure there's money and making sure that that we're looking at new deals. So I don't have to worry immensely, immensely uh, about how that that runs. But I would say that 
for me in the digital space with employees, that that's being inside Slack channels. That's getting on the phone, people. I, I really don't know the brick and mortar world so well. I would assume that's going on ride-alongs. <laughs> you know, I'd assume that's going to work in the office for a few days and seeing what that's like. But what a lot of our our thesis is that the way that we crush off X is by bringing this in-house, right? So I want good people, and I don't want to sound like a monster here, but eventually we'll get rid of some of these people, right? Now, we'll create new jobs <laughs> internally, right? But, you know, eventually we'll get rid of some of these people. Some of these contractors that we're using that are taking a fee because they work in an agency and the agency has a ton of overhead from running that agency, we'll, that will disappear because we'll basically have an own internal agency of sorts, right? So I want good people, but only the FTEs are staying around. Only those full-time employees are staying around. All the contractors are, the plan is to replace them. Yep. So in a, a 500K to million dollar, you're usually probably buying from the founder, but is it really, you kind of just have employees or do these really have like CEOs and kind of founder-like people in them or they can kind of be run by just employees that, you know, with given, you know, direction can kind of get the job done? So the reason that I, that, that I look at, you know, and if, if, if a great deal came across my plate that had a million in quote unquote EBITDA, which would really be sales discretionary earnings. There's no, well, or sorry, 100,000 in EBITDA um, on a small amount of revenue. Uh, it's not really EBITDA, right? And that's, um, you know, my, one of my board members sort of pointed this out to me about something I was underwriting. He's like, there's no EBITDA here. Like, I don't care what they're saying to you. The owner did not take a salary and they don't have an office, right? There's that, that, that money would just be gone immediately once we, once we come into our ecosystem. So the reason that 500K plus is nice to me is because I can actually replace, it doesn't have to be all owner-operated. The businesses that I'm buying today are probably owner-operated. I'd like to graduate in the next few years to ones that are not. And I've actually have a couple people in my network that have capital that have said to me, hey, I'll give you money to buy businesses doing two plus million in EBITDA, but I have no interest in putting money into businesses that are making 500K in seller discretionary earnings. And that's just because to that same point, they all function fully on their own already. So to your point about how it works today, the businesses that I'm looking at, most of them are are owner-operators, owner-operated businesses. Um, But the idea is that that owner is like, maybe he made 800 grand last year or 500 or 400, whatever, but he's... He really, really beat himself up to do it. And he doesn't understand how to scale without giving himself more work. <laughs> and and I and I hate to say this, but it's a little bit of a game of attrition, right? They're they're sort of, you know, at the end of it. And the reality is that everyone talks a really big game about what they think their web their business is worth <laughs> until you hand them a couple million dollar check, right? Um, and, and I recently was talking to someone, I've been underwriting a deal currently where they I said, well, you know, ClearBank, and for anyone who doesn't know, ClearBank is a lender in this space. It hooks up to the back end of your store or your business so they can just pull their numbers in and they underwrite you basically algorithmically. And um, he said, well, ClearBank gave us an estimated valuation of 5 to $7 million. And I said, well, that's cool. Is ClearBank offering to buy you for 5 to $7 million? <laughs> and they said, no. And so this really goes back to the idea of like things are worth what people will pay for them. <laughs> Right. Um, so if you were an owner, this is these two guys who made 700K in profit last year. They each made 350K, but they worked 100 hours a week each to do it. That's 
you know, if I wrote them a $3 million check, they'd be probably pretty ecstatic to walk away from it today. Um, so that's part, part of my part, part of my thesis about deal size is that in a 2 million plus EBITDA range, you start seeing family offices and private equity firms coming in and being like, Ooh, we'll buy that. You know, look, we'll just hold that on the books. For me, I want to buy businesses that are just below that. So they're off the big boys radar that I know that we can grow into that. And, and then they'll be on everyone's radar. And being able to kind of maintain your hold code structure while letting the, the, the folks run the business. How do you think about kind of getting your message across to the team of like, these are the improvements and changes we'd like to see based on kind of your edge and competitive advantage without kind of, you know, becoming a day-to-day worker yourself? I, this is honestly, Chris, something that I'm struggling with. <laughs> um, and it's something that is like incredibly apropos of like the past week of my life because currently there's things happening with, with, with the first business we acquired where basically the, 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 the CEO of it, he's a, he's an amazing entrepreneur. Like he's awesome. He's phenomenal and he's great at operations, which is not what I'm not great at. And I'd like to, essentially replace him eventually and then bring him onto the parent level as like a COO, right? So we can set up these operations for all the new subs. But, you know, I find myself having to jump in every now and then just because I've seen, it's not my first rodeo. And so I'm seeing mistakes come in here and there. But really the, the thesis here is to just hire really good people that are better and smarter than me and sort of let them do their thing. And I don't mean to sound lazy. I just know like, I know that I have an eye for talent and I just want to hire people and, and incentivize entrepreneurs even, right? And this is a great example with the first acquisition. And, and, and probably moving forward, we won't do it like this, but there'll be other opportunities I'm happy to create where there is an alignment of incentives, right, through, through equity in, in parent co, right? So they, there is an interesting way in which people can be incentivized to have control, but also incentivized to let go of a little bit of control. Um, so my point saying is I want to hire great people and partner with great entrepreneurs, right? So I want this first business. This business is great. He's great. I want to make his job easier and not get in the minutia and tell him what to do. But like, yeah, you don't have to pay media buyers $13,000 a month anymore. You don't have to pay creatives that, you know, like, we're going to take the in-house. Your margins are going to increase and you can run and you can breathe and you can call us and we'll step in if something's going wrong, but you can call us at the parent level in the interim when you have questions and my phone book. And very luckily my phone book has some people in it that have much more vast phone books than me. <laughs> um, but so vis-a-vis everyone's phone book becomes accessible to this business that normally would never get access to, to some of these people. You kind of mentioned ClearBank, but I had a question just, you know, again, at these sides, are most people financing these with all cash? Are they using debt? Obviously, they're not huge equity checks. So how how are these getting financed traditionally? Sure. The smaller the smaller deals, I'd say that the sub-six-figure deals are all getting financed with cash. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend it, but I could, like, create an interesting capital stack with, like, a zero APR credit card and a little cash, you know what I mean, and a little seller financing. There's, there's a million ways to skin this cat, right? Um, but cash is the way you're doing smaller deals. Uh, you know, at the big, at the big, big scale, things get weird with, like, management services agreements and earnouts and clawbacks. And, you know, we actually structured our first deal. I have a bit of experience in that world. So our first deal had a little bit of creativity that's involved with it that includes unwind provisions, 
sort of if I if we don't hit certain KPIs from a parent company perspective in terms of the goals that we're trying to do, right? Um, that sort of protect the seller from certain. We got a good deal, right? And so we and the idea is that the seller is protected if we don't hit certain goals as well that we promised the seller. But so what's interesting is that when you in the six figure to low million dollar range, you start opening yourself up to SBA 7A loans, which are acquisition loans. I mean, that's going to be something like 10% down. I think it's like normally 7% on a 10-year fix, which is like really beautiful debt. <laughs> um, so, and any of these businesses would cash flow. You would still cash flow after paying off the note, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. So seller financing happens pretty often, but not for like the majority of it. Something like your seller financing, like 20% of the business. Um, you know, earnouts don't really make sense unless it's like a acquisition by another company. But so for my deals are a little bit more complicated because I'm trying to sort of use really massive leverage here with creative deal structure. But in general, this size, you're looking at um, at, at all cash or seller financing and, and SBA. Now, what's really interesting is that one of the reasons that I like the deal size that I'm at is I just start tiptoeing into that world of, of, of mes debt, sort of that you know, corporate non-recourse debt, um, which is nice for someone like me, right? Um, at the smaller range, like that SBA loan is like personally guaranteed by you. And you are basically, you know, completely liable for everything in that regard. The range that I'm playing in and is more like there are debt funds I can talk to, you know, mes debt lenders. It's not as friendly as SBA. It's more in the 10% range, but it becomes corporate non-recourse debt that I can then refinance later on. I can take it into the parent company without an, and not encumber the subs with that, right? So I can get this, I can take these consolidated financials that flow up to me and use that from a parent company perspective to take corporate non-recourse debt that is collateralized by it's not recourse for me, right? Um, and then if you as you get bigger, you're 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 getting Ziegler to write you a bond, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I'm not that world yet. One day. All right, one more kind of on on the business side, and then we'll we'll ask some personal ones and bring it home. But um, this is going to be a, a I think it's a loaded question, but I'm full of loaded questions. So let's say I'm 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 Chris. I'm I'm in Fort Worth. I'm a real estate guy. I'm going to, I'm going to get into this. Um, I see a website that I think is great. It makes sense. I can tell by gut and feel the marketing of it's just been terrible. Maybe it's a similar, um, kind of CPG type business. The question really is like, how can the average person that doesn't know a lot about growth hacking and marketing online, what are the low hanging fruit things like maybe questions they should be asking or things they should be doing on social? Like what's the best way from a, for a non-expert that can identify that it needs to be marketed better? Should they just hire an agency to do it? Or are there certain channels you would have them focus on? Like give me a 101 on how someone can be a really uh, figure out kind of online marketing, you know, at a very high level. Sure. I mean, I think that, that if you at a really high level, I think about what you're good at, what you like, Right. You know, I think if you're really good at numbers, you're really analytical, that you really might find media buying to be interested. So media buying is like running paid ads. Right. But if you love writing, you probably are more interested in, in content marketing and SEO. Right. So this is a little amorphous and art, but figuring out what you're good at. But in general, 
I, I genuinely believe that anyone can do anything they want if they put in the efforts and have the right tools. Right. And so, I mean, I try and give people the right tools. I think that really understanding just like how traffic works, like just taking some free courses about Google analytics and about SEO and, you know, Facebook blueprint, Facebook blueprint is Facebook's free course and running Facebook ads. Any of these things, whatever traffic channels are being run on this website that you're looking at, I would just go take the free courses and content and learn to understand whether your gut is right. They're not going to teach you how to be a master, but they're going to tell you whether your gut is right about this stuff, right? You're going to see clear inefficiencies with their business. And then I think, you know, I mean, I'm not not trying to plug me, but I write a, a newsletter, you know, where I break down that stuff, nanoflips.com. Um, I, you know, I'm a college dropout, you know, who went to five high schools. Uh, I learned everything that I can from Google. <laughs> I mean, it sounds so corny, but it's sort of the great equalizer, right? I mean, I'm very blessed. I don't want to pretend that like I don't come from a, priv- a privileged background. I do, right? Um, a very, very, very well-educated family. I grew up in New York City. I'm a tall white guy, right? I'm the, the people, someone dealt me a royal flush in life, and I'm very lucky in that regard um, in terms of trying to navigate the business world in America. Um, but I really literally I haven't, Everything I've learned is from Google and YouTube and forums and Twitter and courses. It's just all accessible to everyone. So I would like find people like me. I'd start, I'd get on Twitter. I'd follow the people like me talking about website flipping. I'd follow media buyers and SEO guys, people that are sharing great contents. And, you know, I, I, there's great and great little groups and communities. I mean, I think Chris, you and I are in one together on WhatsApp, right? With some really cool killers in there. Um, my friend Cody Sanchez, the one who put it together and just, uh, she's a, a, a monster in, in the, in the space of private equity and buying some businesses. Um, so I really would just find people that are generally get their kicks out of sharing information, <laughs> right? Like, and, and, and follow them and learn. And, and if you really want to learn about flipping websites, yeah, sign up for my newsletter, follow me. I literally, all I try and talk about is, you know, t- tips and tricks about how to do due diligence and how to improve websites and how to make more money from them. Anyone who, in the long run, I'll, I'll launch a course off this, but the reality is it's like, you don't, it could be my course or somebody else's course, buy some basic knowledge for 500 bucks that teaches you just like real basics of, 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 of whatever channels you're looking at here and, and make sure that you can underwrite them on your own, right? Uh, I would rather, and tell us to all the time, and, if a website looks, if I tell you the website sell for 3x net revenue, yearly revenue, and a website is for sale currently and it is being bid up to 4x net revenue or 5x net revenue, that is because there's an efficient market and the people like me have realized there are clear inefficiencies with this website that they could, at the flip of a switch, make better tomorrow. So I'd rather people that are new to this buy that website and make 20% cash on cash return that first year, right? Then try and buy some deal at 2x net revenue that they think they're going to make 50% cash on cash return and they lose their shirt because everything falls apart and there's termites in the wood and there's, you know, all of the house, right? In that in that sort of metaphor. Um, it's just, the returns are just so outsized that I, you know, even if you, I don't know, it's like different classes of real estate and cap rates, right? I think like, 
you know, it, you, you're better, you're, you're often safer buying things that bring you less cash immediately. If it seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. That's that, that really holds, holds true here with, with websites as well. All right. Last question. I, I said last question, but last question. W- what's like the biggest risk uh, to buying one of these? Is, 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 and maybe we can we can keep it at the call it the hundred k uh, level where you don't have employees. Really, is it that the market goes away? Is it you just get lazy and don't kind of nurture it? Like what what is the biggest risk to these things just going to zero? I would say that the biggest first well going to zero. I'd say you're pretty much. Uh, it's almost impossible. Uh, really, really. As long as you've done your due diligence correctly, you want to be buying websites that have traffic going to multiple pages, traffic that's coming from multiple sources. You want to see traffic that's either solid or growing for two years. This, again, what that implies to me is that through every single algorithmic update of whatever channels it's coming from, it's passed all the tests. So the the idea that it goes to zero, uh, slim to none. It's definitely possible. But in terms of like the high risk, like to go to zero, it's because you got conned. It's because like someone like me, if I really wanted, knows how to really easily inflate those numbers. I could send fake traffic to a website. I could, if I wanted to, I mean, and I think this is probably what's happening in the NFT art space and the crypto space. But if I wanted to buy my own products, I could. I could take $100,000, you know, go buy my own products and then just collect that revenue. And the only thing I would lose would be the merchant processing fees, right? And, and lose 2%. I think that's, I think that's what's happening with a lot of this NFTs and art, right? People are buying, buying their own crypto art, <laughs> sending it to their own wallet. Now, wow, this, this piece of digital art is now worth a hundred Ethereum, but I'll sell it to you for 20 Ethereum, <laughs> right? <laughs> and boom, I just made 20 Ethereum, right? From, from nothing at all. Um, but so I think that exists here as well. It's not as easy to do, you know, you want to, it's, it's, that's why I look at long-term because if all of a sudden you buy a website, that's got great traffic for two or three months, it's quite likely I fake that, right? When I look through or possible, I fake that through Google analytics, right? Just sending fake traffic. If this traffic is six years old and, and it's had some sort of traffic and stable growth going up and down but stable or growing for the past couple of years, I doubt that you've played a six-year long game on safe traffic just to, to, to pull 80, 100 grand from me. It's possible. It's just it's astronomically unlikely. Um, so going to zero, pretty, pretty unlikely. Is it possible that an algorithm changes and you get half your traffic? 100%. Absolutely. In the same way, it, it, it's, you know, this is a little wild, wild west of the market here, right? Um, so like, is it totally possible, you know, that... Uh, going to zero is, is getting scammed, right? Dropping aggressively is probably because someone was, was spamming or doing something bad initially. And now whatever channel was sending traffic before has picked up on that and has beat you up for it. But it's just quite possible to slowly decline, you know, it, just like neighborhoods. If you don't maintain them, right? If you don't maintain your house, you're going to get less, you know, you're not going to keep being able to raise the rent. Right. Um, so that's, that's, that's the big risk is getting conned. And so a lot of what half the battle here is buying a good deal. Um, and I think that that holds true with other asset classes as well. And if you're buying through one of these listing sites by nature, it's, it's, I'm sure they're not letting people list that are conned. So that, that in and of itself kind of creates a lot of trust if you're buying it directly from something where it's been listed. 
Well, what I'll say is that if you're buying it through a broker, that's true. Because, of, But I will say that if you're buying it through a marketplace, it, cons do exist, right? A marketplace is, is, is it's a free-for-all, right? I'm allowed to list anything. Now, they'll verify. There's plugins that will say these analytics are verified, this traffic is verified, or this revenue is verified. But again, if it's too good to be true, it is. What I see all the time, I love Flippa. It's the largest marketplace for websites. I love them. I've used them. They're great. Um, they're awesome. There's great deals on there, but there's also really, really bad deals on there. So what someone will do is say like, you know, what they, in most businesses, same websites, we often look at the trailing 12, right? The TTM, the trailing 12 months of revenue. And so what'll happen is someone has some drop shipping stores that they're running with paid ads and they just run it up to the moon. Their campaigns are profitable for three months and then it died off. And that's worthless to them. I mean, it's literally worthless. It gets no traffic on its own. You know, maybe there's some customer list that you could sell to later on. But in general, there's just nothing special about it. What they'll go do is go list that. And they'll say, they'll show the past three months and say, whoa, we made $50,000 a month. Well, $50,000 a month, remember, websites are valued at three x, <laughs> you know, 36x monthly revenue. So this website's worth 100 and, or sorry, one point eight million at fifty thousand dollars a month right that's bullshit it's sorry pseudo language it's it's it, it's just not actually worth that um so fraud you know is is the biggest thing to look out for and if you're buying from a marketplace or there are big facebook groups and communities where things are sold that's when you really trust comes into play and escrow and the real due diligence but if you're buying through a broker to your point um then I mean, listen, even the brokers are incentivized to make things look better than they are, right? Because they get a commission on the sale. But in general, you're going to be much safer off. Yep. I love it, man. I don't know if I'm fully ready to go buy my first website, but I'm damn I'm damn sure closer uh, after this discussion. <laughs> I mean, my thought is this, is like, this is the asset class that I really, really understand. And so in the interim, you know, I, I, a quick anecdote I touched on already and I told you before is that last year I sold my company, I had some money and I've, I've known a lot of developers in my life and, I've, and, and I thought, oh, I, could, I can underwrite all these deals. Let me do this. And, if, and I thought, let me just test the waters by just doing a single family home first and seeing how that goes. And I really almost lost my shirt on that. You know, I really essentially broke even. And in terms of like capital allocation to break even for what was hundreds of hours of my time and a quarter million dollars was just like really horrific capital allocation, right? I could have done much. I could have put it in the S and P and made fifty grand, um, sadly. But so what I say to people is that you know if you want to buy, if you're interested in this as a hobby, it's a great hobby, right? Uh, there's it's it's a great way to learn. And if you want to graduate into doing sort of what I'm working on, and other people I know are working on, which is much bigger roll up stuff. Like I, my plan here is to build, you know, nine figures in revenue. And fold into a SPAC or get or get picked apart by El Catterton, right? That's 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 the dream here, right? Um, but what I will say is that I wouldn't take big swings on this as passive income if it's just not the space for you. Like you, you're gonna make the most money doing what you're great at. So for me, like Chris, I'm gonna call you and ask you if I can be an LP in your next fund, right? That's how I'm gonna play in real estate moving forward, right? Um, but I can tell you that like dollar for time, that you know, flipping houses is not for me. Right. So what I would say that probably for people like you, the dollar for time, you know, flipping websites uh, is, 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 is not the best use of your, of your time. Now, maybe a couple and you can build a little cash flow and portfolio. That's great. But the full on 
make it a career thing. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a full-time thing. It's, it's, it's complex. I don't want to pretend to people this stuff is super, super easy. Um, it's, it's just, there are risks and it's tough. All right. Is there a, uh, is there a book or maybe a blog or something? I know we have, um, you have nano flips that people can come uh, register to, but is there something that you've read or watched that, that might be a great extension of how people could learn more about this, um, besides going to nano flips? Yeah. Flip has got a really cool podcast as well. They flip is the largest marketplace for this, for websites for sale. Um, they they did interview me on it. They did interview Cody. They interviewed like sort of great people in the space. What it's called the exit, um, and they interview people that have exited businesses. Very often digital ones. You know, candidly, I'm sort of I've been so in the weeds for so many years, and I'm just sort of coming up to breathe after the after last year selling this business. And I'm just really trying to. I'm just getting familiar and comfortable with this sort of world of where people are really looking into this and teaching this kind of stuff. So there's not a huge huge amount of information that's out there currently. In fact, that's why I think it's even possible for us to talk about an asset class that gets 30% cash on cash returns pretty standardly, right? Um, and it's because it just hasn't been really, really discovered yet. You know, cannabis is like in, in the, the third inning, second inning. Website flipping, you know, websites as an asset class, you know, is, is that early too, right? It's one of those things where you have Thrasio, you know, which is the big, big, big player in the space. They're rolling up FBA businesses, but you know, they're trading it now like a they're arbs, they buy businesses at like a three X EBITDA multiple, and they're currently valued at like a 30X EBITDA multiple. Right. Um, but my point is that you've got PE firms and family offices, and even all all the iBankers and the public market guys that are looking at this space. And so what happens in a market, as we all know, is that so the things are all interconnected. So even if even if Figs, which is just just is just listed for its IPO, Figs is a a website that sells um, scrubs for doctors. They're they're you know they're going live at a four billion dollar market cap, and they've done sixty million in EBITDA last year, right? So like my point to say that is like even though that sounds disconnected from a hundred thousand dollar website, it's solely trickles down in terms of how valuations are looked at, right? And so this this asset class is sort of undiscovered and and is and is and that's why it's so valuable. And that's my long way of saying there's not a ton of information online about this today. Um but that if you want to learn more, obviously sign up for our newsletter and stuff, but like piecemeal it down. What is this? It is driving traffic and it is monetization. And then it's M&A, right? Those, so I would look into those three things. If you want to learn about Facebook ads, go take the Facebook blueprint. You know, you want to learn about SEO, start Googling around and go on YouTube, you know? Um, but there doesn't, there's not really much of one home for this. And I think that's one of the reasons I've managed to sort of gain a decent following pretty quickly in this space is because there's not a massive home for it yet. What's the best way that people can uh, get in contact with you or reach out? Yeah, so I'm I'm pretty addicted to Twitter. So mostly you can find me there. That's Jameson Camp or James on Camp. I also, uh, if you someone wants to reach out to me, you know, we've got uh, just hi at nanoflips.com. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm an incredibly responsive person, probably to a fault. Um, and I'm pretty, 
you know, half my day now is answering DMs on Twitter. So, um, so, you know, people, I, you know, that's one thing I, I love about Twitter. It's this weird hybrid of, of speaker box and community in one, right? Most social channels are just speaker box and just sort of like talking to your audience. Twitter really feels like a, we're all communicating together. Um, so yeah, so Twitter or hi at nanoflips.com are two easy ways to reach me. James, thank you so much for today. This was fascinating. Uh, this was a great conversation. Good, man. I hope people find it interesting. Thank you so much for having me. It's, this is, uh, it's sort of, it's like I, I told you before we started, it's a bit of an honor. I'm excited to be on the podcast. So thank you for taking the time. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.